Welcome to Evolving Door, the podcast where I interview guests about the moments in their lives that have really moved them forwards, where they had a significant shift in their thinking, their awareness, and their understanding about life in all its various aspects. Join me and expect to be enlivened, enriched, and inspired on your personal journey of evolution. Welcome back, everyone, to the Evolving Door podcast. This is episode five. It's been so great to hear your support over the first four episodes. If you haven't already, please make sure you go straight away and leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Today's podcast is with someone called Sarah Fletcher. She's a friend of mine. She's a lifelong educator. She's an ex-secretary school head teacher and now overseeing a group of schools We talk about so many interesting things from her upbringing in an uh, army town, on a council estate, to surrealist art, to war, violence, becoming a teacher, trying to create better life opportunities for young people. And uh, we get to a point towards the end where we talk about simple living and high thinking, and you'll find out something really curious and interesting about Sarah. So without further ado, let's dive straight in and meet her. Sarah, how's it going? Really well, thank you. It's Sunday afternoon. I know. it's The weather has been so changeable. We had a about an hour or two of a bit of a little mini storm there, and now it's all sunny again, so that's nice. I remember something about you. when I Because we worked together um, when you were assistant head, and then I was running a mentoring program for young people at risk of exclusion from education. And yeah. that was in about 2003, 2004. In 2006, when I got married, we, yeah. we, we've sort of become friends. And I, you said to me, what would you like for a present? And I said, I'll have money. And then you bought me a How to Grow Vegetables in Your Garden book, which okay. as, as I'm older, I realized was a far more useful and thoughtful uh, gift um, at the time. You don't remember this? Yeah. So it, it tells a little bit of a story to me about myself at the time and about you. So I, okay. I and, and you've continued to be um, a very sort of grounded and nourishing sort of figure in our lives. So my first question is, have you always been like that? <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know. I was talking to my mother recently. I was telling her because you know my mother, don't you? And I was yeah. telling her that, that we were having this conversation today. Um, and talking about a few things. And she reminded me when I was at infant school and um, that I came home quite concerned with my sister, she's a year older, because an Indian boy in our class had been asked to sit outside the room and the lunchtime supervisor called him unclean because he had nits. And I just knew somehow that there was a whole lot of stuff going on with that Um, and that 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 wasn't okay. I, I didn't have the language to describe what I suppose was racism, but. Um, mm. but and I how old were you that then? Are you talking about six or something? Five or, five or six, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I remember my my mother. My mother had a friend who had a daughter who had special needs, and she was um, sent to a special school. Um, and how, at a very young age, I thought that that was um, unacceptable. So I suppose I've I've always had a sense of. Um, um, my sense of community, I suppose, has always been quite broad. You know, we get that from somewhere, don't we? So that came from my parents, presumably. Sometimes we don't develop it at all. Sometimes we develop it as we get older and 
more kind of we see a bit more of the world and stuff so it's interesting that you had it from such a young age so tell me a bit about your parents um you are, yeah. am i right in thinking they were quite religious people or yeah a protestant uh christian free church so my early memories of my parents are often um around church and youth club and uh big gatherings on the field and acoustic guitars you know the kind of so this is the 70s this is quite happy <laughs> Yeah, quite happily. Lots of tambourines, lots of singing and dancing. But actually, they were um, they were very uh, loving people who were very concerned about um, doing their bit to support the community. So we knew mm. the community really well. So my mm. screen has gone blank. Let's come back. It's going to do that, I think. Don't worry. If, it, if it's just a bit of a screensaver thing, then just give it a little wiggle and it should be okay. Uh, quite strict, you know, that, so in terms of their sort of moral expectations if you like so we had a very um we had a very good framework within with from which to move forward into the world a really yeah. strong sense of right and wrong yeah and uh, i have met your mom she's she's lovely um um but as a young person you don't always appreciate that strictness uh, right so how was that for you so i definitely um it gives you something to rebel against doesn't it i suppose <laughs> so um, like most most uh, teenagers, I would certainly, um, you know, I went through a, a wild dressing, wild crazy haircut kind of uh, yeah. period, and it, but it was the it was kind of post punk in the eighties, so there's quite a lot of wildness uh, around. Yeah. yeah, what was what was the kind of music you were listening to? I guess it was Doc Martens and sort yeah, of Doc that Martin, kind of thing. Martin, uh, the Smiths and Smiths and. Um, jam and those kinds of those kinds of things yeah, yeah. paul weller uh, so there's that great song going underground isn't it and all that kind of stuff there's a great sense of um urgency and and actually paul weller has continued to be a real um person who's interested in social change and yeah. stuff like that and morrissey also in his own way there was a sense of um there wasn't just music was it there was also a sense of um something else about it protest i suppose so mm. it was a time of so when i was growing up um in the 80s and when i was a, I was a teenager in the 80s uh, there was a lot of um unrest wasn't there at that time there was a lot yeah. going on yeah. in that era uh, that had quite a big impact on how i thought about about things so the falklands war and uh, minor strike and teachers working to rule a lot of stuff going on and you grew up in um in colchester right in a council estate you went to an army school i remember i went on a school trip to uh, russia actually in 1988 and it was before it had changed um i think before it was still before the war came down yeah. um and we met some people from a school in bury st edmunds which i think is probably not too far away from there yeah so but but particularly then even now it's 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 a kind of a quieter part of the country, isn't it? It's sort of a quite localized kind of a place. So what was it like growing up in a in a town, you know, in the over in the east of England with an army school, council estate? What was that like? My school was on a council estate. It was the school my father had gone to, so it was very local to our family. Mm -hmm. And across and then there was this tiny strip of middle class houses, sort of one road. That's where I lived. On the other side, sort of private houses if you like. And then on the other side of the road was was the big barracks. So Colchester's where it's the, it's the largest barracks in the country, I think, or it certainly was there. Mm. So I, I grew up with lots of soldiers would be 
patrolling, going up and down the road. Was that a bit weird? No, it's just, I suppose it's a bit like being brought up in Northern Ireland in that in that time, Rav, in that you, it's not weird because it's just the way it is. So mm. you, get, you get used to the helicopters going going over the army helicopters and the convoys of troops and the, mm. um, in the great, the glories, you know, those kinds of things just become something of your of your childhood. And I didn't pass my 11 plus, so I went to the school on the council estate, which was a secondary modern. So How did you feel at the time? That was a massive turning point for me because my sister, who's a year older, she did go to grammar school. So mm. she went on the bus in one direction um, into the into the town centre and I went on the bus or walked in the other direction onto the council estate. And um, so I had a quite a, a, a different experience of secondary education to her, very different. She was yeah. just a year older, so naturally competitive, you know, not wanting that to happen. That was probably made me in some ways. But at first when you did the 11 plus and you found out you didn't get it initially, what, what was that like? I think I thought probably that I wasn't clever enough. I think that's probably what went through in my head. Was there any comparison? Because uh, Tina, uh, my wife, um, her, bo- her older sister went to grammar school and yeah. same, and she didn't get in as well. And it was, it was a bit compared. <laughs> um, I love, I love my grandma very, very dearly, and she was wonderful to me. But I do remember when my O level results came out, and she said, "I didn't realise Sarah was clever." Oh, yeah. So there is a labelling, isn't there, of a child it, um, related to where they go to school? Yeah, you, know, you do get, you do get labelled. I remember the careers officer saying to me at secondary school, saying. Something like, um, well, you might be clever in your school, but that doesn't mean you'll go to university. That's amazing because um, yeah. because Tina went uh, actually ended up going to the grammar school for sixth form, but the right. the, the grammar school um, teachers used to say, "Oh well, even though you've been doing really well in your school, that's not really the same as here." So they kind yeah. of made it like a, a secondary yeah. class citizen sort of almost. Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, it makes or breaks you that, doesn't it? Especially because it was quite a rough school, really, that I went to. Mm. Um, you know, where the teachers worked really hard and were really encouraging, but it was difficult. It, it wasn't an easy job for them in that school. And how yeah. did you find that you're, you're, you know, your sister's heading the other direction, you're walking across the field, I guess, to, into this kind of perhaps new environment in a way, or was it were you already used to all those people from living around? Well, because it's it's strange, really, Rav, because it, in terms of my personal contacts and my mum's friends and that kind of thing, you know, it was very different. Yeah. Um, however, my, my parents' youth work and children's clubs and things that they ran through the church meant that I knew quite a lot of those working class youngsters mm. um, or class, as they would say, down there in Essex. I haven't lived there for some time now. Um, yeah, so... I mean, the 80s, so there were kids with very, boys with very tight trousers and DMs and skinheads and homemade tattoos and all of that, all of that stuff. Was there a a sense of um, violence violence in the the neighbourhood? There was a sense of violence, yes, there was. And it was the era of, Um, football hooliganism there was definitely trouble brewing there was a lot of that kind of feeling yeah and how did you make sense of it yourself I remember being quite young and I suppose in year seven or first year as it would have been called there and uh, the geography master 
squaring up to a boy who I knew from the youth club who was 16 um, and having him in the corridor by the scruff of his neck against the wall, the teacher that was assaulting the child. Yeah. I, st I stood still, I stood and watched. And, and what was going through my head was how unacceptable the teacher's behaviour was. So it's a bit like that story of being in the infants, that, that kind of moral centeredness. Yeah. Of uh, standing and watching, and later in life, that's I, you know, that that still exists. But of course, you as a child, you you can't be an agent so much in what's happening. Can you? So in a way, by being in that um, sometimes hostile environment, it just reinforced kind of the seeds that have been sown earlier on. Is that? Yeah, I think I think in in truth, it it made me. Um, not fearful actually in the end because um, although there were these flashpoints at school of, of conflict and so on um, I also knew all of these kids and so that that kid that had the altercation with the geography teacher you know I, I knew him and I wasn't I wasn't frightened of him because I I knew his sisters and I knew who he was and he'd have a conversation mm -hmm. with me and I suppose that came from the privileged position that I had with my father and my mother um, and their church work meaning that I was kind of in a little bit in the lives of those people through through my parents so that kind of gave me a bit of a suit of armor perhaps going through school. In a way you were with them and of that community but at the same time slightly removed you know like you had some kind of a buffer or some kind of another yeah. world a little bit that you also had access to um yeah. it's interesting what you point you mentioned that you, it, it made you a bit fearless because i think um sometimes when we are removed like really removed then the mystery of something can make it very scary because you don't yeah. really know it. You just, it's what you read in the newspapers or whatever. I think you mentioned to me before that there was a bomb or something. What happened with that? Yeah, there was. I mean, because um, the eighties were a time of conflict. So it was the cold war, wasn't it? There was a lot of stuff going on. But the IRA were a, <clears throat> were a real threat in England at that time, weren't they? And there was a number of um, attacks, terrorist attacks in Britain. And Colchester was a target because um, the kids in my class, their, their dads went to Northern Ireland um, as, as um, the army did on patrol and they were sent out there for six months and came back. Mm. So the IRA were, were a threat on mainland Britain at, at that time and there was an IRA bomb that, that went off. A soldier and his wife got into their car just opposite my house. Oh God. Um, I wasn't at home. My mother was at home. Um, and uh, they were badly injured. But mm. it, because I wasn't in the army, I didn't have that sense of the attack was against me. I think what I ended up with was a feeling of that the society in which we live is, is in conflict. And there's this terrible problem in Northern Ireland that, you know, I didn't have a sense of judgment about who was right or who was wrong necessarily. I was mm. just concerned about the way in which it was it was playing out and the innocent people or not innocent people, depending on your point of view. Yeah. Were kind of caught caught up in that. And that's interesting. How do you think you kind of came to that kind of um not equanimity, but you know what I mean? Because oftentimes, as you say, um 
history from where you're sitting or whatever country you belong to, wherever is told in one way. And then you yeah. go to the other country and then they see it in a completely different way. And yeah. people find it hard to not only be stuck in their kind of identity. So what do you think it was that was enabling you? Were you reading books? Were you getting other inputs? Was it your sort of yeah. spirituality or whatever? What was it that was enabling you to kind of see a bigger picture? I think what came before was the Falklands War. So when I was 14, the, there were two regiments in Colchester, the Paratroopers and the Gurkhas, and both went to the Falklands War. So the Battle of Goose Green, if that means anything to you. No, I don't know that one. That was a Colchester... It was Colchester Regiment, I believe. So mm. I remember being at school and um, the army kids being called into the hall to be told that their fathers were off. You know, imagine that. Yeah. Um, I thought you were about to say that their fathers were killed. Did you know anybody whose fathers I died? I don't remember that, but I don't, I don't think it's necessary. It, so it was nobody close to me whose father mm. died. Um, but the army children came and went, so they they'd be in the school for six months or twelve months, and then the, the regiment would move on, and then they'd they'd leave. So very transient, actually. So there was a, a division in the school between the army kids and the and the council estate kids, I suppose. Um, mm. So that that Falklands War, that you know, I was I was reading the newspapers and so on, and it was a strange one, wasn't it? That was Margaret Thatcher. It was the thing, wasn't it, that she. There was certain, well, the, this is the bit that I know, there were certain rules of the game and, you know, there were certain things you're not supposed to shoot on a ship that's uh, going away or whatever. And there was a ship um, that was supposedly leaving the, the area and she shot it anyway. And I remember just seeing a documentary about that one guy who'd been burnt so much and he was mm -hmm. still alive. And um, uh, so I don't know, that's the bit that I remember. It seemed that she kind of just broke the rules because she just didn't, no, but I don't know what do you remember. Small war, wasn't it? So this tiny territory that none none of us had heard of had been invaded by the by the Argentinians, and then before we knew it, we were all going off to war. But it was my classmates' dads, you know, that were going off. So it's closer to, to home for you, yeah. yeah. Really close to really close to home. Um, and did it seem like it? it did, it, did you ever talk to any of them about their dads going away or what that meant? Or no. no. And there are things you wish you'd done, aren't there? Yeah. Um, somehow, I mean, that would have that would have been a a brave thing to have done because of the emotional baggage that kind of comes with mm. comes with that. I didn't have that emotional courage to talk to my classmates about it at that time. So, for example, so what was it that you think from that experience then gave you a little bit maybe more sense of not taking sides on on the RA thing? I think what it what it was was I thought that it wasn't worth wasting lives over, you know, that these were real human beings whose kids I knew and that mm. though that situation should have been resolved in a different way and that war, war was not the right way of doing it. I mean, hundreds of soldiers died, didn't they? Argentinians and, and British as well. Yeah. And, um, and I, I suppose the thing for me was that IRA problem the troubles i don't know very much about it it's just it was going on for a very long time from before mm. i was born and it was still going on it was being fought in mainland britain by people who didn't understand what that was all what that was all to do with and it just seemed to be um that it needed resolving needed resolving that there was healing that was needed rather than 
continue fighting. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, you meant you just said something there that didn't understand it, and it just made me think. Oftentimes, so oftentimes, mm. when we're fighting each other or people are fighting each other, it is often because they actually don't understand each other or haven't taken the time to understand each other. You, you know what I mean? It, it, it is the kind of easiest, first, more space way to try and solve a situation, but it it's, um, has some serious consequences. Mm. And it was, the cold, it was the Cold War rap at that time. So as teenagers, you know, teenagers these days are very frightened, aren't they? They're thri- frightened about climate change. They're yeah. frightened about the pandemic. Yeah. Um, they get they get worried about stuff, and in those days, we were worried about nuclear war. World war, yeah. World war, yeah. Well, I remember um, uh, seeing a song on TV by this uh, kid. It was a, it was a sort of a song to Mr. Gorbachev, please, Mr. Gorbachev. You know, you know, something like that. And it was all about yeah, not th- there was a very real sense uh, that that the the world could erupt into a nuclear war, wasn't it? Yeah. Definitely, mm. definitely. So that you asked earlier, and I didn't answer you. That side of Essex is is quite rural, quite rural, but it's not far. It's not far from London. There's a mm. lot of army bases. There's an air force base, or three or four, just 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 towards Ipswich in Suffolk. So I I remember the planes leaving Suffolk overnight, and that was the American air base where they where they bombed Libya from from there. Seriously. So I, I had, so I was very. I suppose I had a. Um, was very conscious of the of global politics because of physically where I was living and what was you know really on my doorstep that I couldn't ignore. I'm a sort of an out in the world, running around doing things. I find you really grounded and very thoughtful. Yeah. I mean, you're an educator primarily. Yeah. Um, tell me about Paul Nash because you were just like I'm going to just we'll cover a few of your influences. I like surrealist stuff, and I was surrealist painters and photographers and things. Because it's they're, they're pictures that that aren't that aren't saying one thing, and I, I can remember seeing Paul Nash very young. Uh, my mother was is a, you know she loves to paint, and uh, she took taken me to countless galleries over the years when especially when I was little. Um, and I remember this picture by Paul Nash that was a picture of a landscape, and it was also um, a picture of planes that had been grounded. So. Um, Second World War planes, I think. He was a war painter, wasn't he? Mm. I read up a little bit about him. It said, a painter of the shattered world. I thought that was beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And I remember well, looking at this picture and thinking to myself, well, it's a, it's a picture of two things at the same time, which I thought was kind of clever. And then I was trying to think about what it was actually trying to say, because it was trying to say something. I don't know what, I didn't know what. I just knew that it was a picture that was purposefully painted to communicate an idea um and so i've always liked and i've always liked art because it can communicate an idea beyond beyond words yeah i i i I, sorry sorry go on i was going to say also most things that we experience you can take it on surface can't you but there's often an underlying kind of dialogue so and there's another story underneath the surface, isn't there? Another, another something else going on in amongst all of that. Yeah, definitely. So that's always been of interest to me. I heard someone recently say that um, art, to just to echo your point, 
uh, is what powerful because it helps us to move beyond the intellect. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes when you're over-rationalizing, you, you can say, well, no, what are you talking about? That's just some planes in a field or whatever. But actually there's something, you know, maybe emotional or a sense of loss or a sense of tragedy or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but you were only very young when you when you came across these paintings, right? And you were thinking these things. Scratching my head, thinking, <laughs> how can that be? What's that all about? What? And how old were you? I don't. I don't know. And I've I've looked it up. I can remember the gallery. I can even tell you where which wall it was on. It had a. It was a big moment for me, you know. And I've been, I've looked at his paintings many times to try and work out exactly which painting it was that, that I saw. But I don't. I don't. I don't know. But you were less than 10, right, I, I think? Oh, yeah, I was about six or five or six, I think. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, how, I mean, my boys at the minute are five and eight, and, um, yeah. and you know, you never do write down these things. You, sh you should, but, like, they sometimes come out with the most incredible things that, as they're trying to, with a really fresh, um, innocent way of looking at things and suddenly asking questions that maybe we wouldn't yeah. ask anymore, you know. You know, the thing is, Ralph, we've talked but almost nothing but war. So true, true, true. <laughs> and well, an army town and all these things to do with true. war. And I think that when I was 21, I was like, you know, and I finished university and I was going to choose what I was going to do with my life. And I was political and knew I wanted to do something that was, that had a purpose and that contributed to society, if you like. Because mm. of all these problems that I was, I was aware of and concerned. So I, I turned very much, very squarely to education, which is a very positive and life-affirming thing to, to yeah, do. Yeah, you've been doing it ever since, right? I've been doing it ever since. That's right. Yeah. It's like I had all of these things happen, and then that was it. That was what I was going to do, and I haven't moved. Brilliant. No, and um, and we'll come on to that more. But you you mentioned uh, you did a sociology A level, so before you did, and 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 you and you came across a guy yeah. called Paul Willis. I want to know a bit yeah. about that. Okay, well, Paul, Paul Willis, a classic sociology, 1970s, um, learning to labour. And when I read Paul Willis when I was doing A-level, I thought this is the school I've gone to. Um, Paul Willis describes these lads who are um, lower, lower set and they, uh, they get schooled in such a way that they go into dead-end jobs. Um, mm. It's almost like, well, he says that they're taught learning to labour, so their education is to steer them into into that path and it was very it was a powerful book for two reasons to me one is or research one is that it made me think um that it was describing perfectly what i saw happening at school and what the kids on that council estate where they ended up and those army estate kids what happened to them in the end you know that they education didn't they didn't get much out of education. When I was looking up about him, he really looked at education from the children's perspective, not the teacher's perspective, but also um, not internalizing other people's expectations of you. Yeah, so there it is. So, so if, if as a, an educator you've read Paul Willis and you know about learning to labor and you know about what happens when we label children, what happens when we have low expectations and self-fulfilling prophecy and all those kinds of things, if you can teach children in such a way that they end up in dead end jobs you can also teach children in such a way that you enable their life and you give them life chances and you raise their expectations you can do the opposite um mm. so so that it was just a 
powerful that, thought, isn't it? That as an educator, you can change somebody's life. Change somebody's life, yeah. And had you already decided at that stage by A-level that you wanted to go into education or was that kind of one of the things that inspired you? I think that when I was about 13, 14, I started talking about wanting to be wanting to be a teacher. And then for a while after that, I was thinking about a number of other things like social work and I thought about art therapy hmm. um, and a few other bits and pieces. But ended up, I then worked as a care assistant in a special school. I wasn't a qualified teacher. I was doing night shifts and social times and all those kinds of things. Hmm. And then hmm. I ended up then decided to be a teacher. So I think I've always wanted to work, always wanted to work, I suppose, in the state sector, you know, wanting to work. In doing some, giving something back kind of thing. One of the other things that I, I, I came across when I looked him up was he was emphasizing activity, collaboration, and critique and not a passive absorption of knowledge. You know, like, what do you think in terms of how is that influenced or how do you, what do you think about that as an educator? Sometimes we're, a lot of people seem to think education is just go through the exams, memorize a bunch of stuff. Um, what's your thoughts as a, an educator for such a long time? Um, oh. So we get measured, don't we, in schools by, by the exam results stuff. Mm. Um, but really we want to set up human beings that help to set up human beings that have got choices and power and can move in, into the world and think for themselves. But mm. that's not to say that I have, as an educator, sort of consciously planned to do that. I think if I consciously plan anything, it's simply to enable the individual to to take part in their education properly. Um, to remove barriers has ended up being the big thing for me, that the education will often look after itself um, if the child is in the right frame of mind and, and has been enabled to do that. And sometimes the barriers that children face before they can learn are enormous, aren't they? Yeah. Sometimes possibly enormous there's so so many backstories that you, you don't know and that get get in the way of children being able to be successful at school mm. and i think that great educators have got their eye on that and how to spark that child's interest and how, how to help mm. that child move forward um, and i know that you've you i mean i know you do so many uh, different types of activities and some of it i've been aware of too w working with you on the mentoring programs and then having come in to to work with some of the boys um later as well that you're always looking for ways to to unlock those barriers and to to yeah, move them forward and i think um it's to know that i can't do that i i can do that with some children some children will respond to me, but sometimes it, it's about connecting a child to somebody else outside of the school that will really mm. make all the all the difference. Mm. Um, yeah, so which is a terrible challenge at the moment. It's one of the things we've been talking about at work recently is about how to re-engage children that have been at home for three months. Yeah. So just for context, so obviously we're recording this sort of towards the end of the lockdown, but we've been in lockdown for three months. Um and it's interesting, you and I were chatting briefly. We weren't going to send our boys back, but now we think we'll, they'll go back for a couple of weeks before September, which is probably a good thing. I forget that like, like uh, people going back to work after a long time or kids going back, whatever, it, it can be quite nerve wracking, right? 
So, um, and actually one of the thing that, uh, you know, you mentioned, and it's not just, well, it's, it's nationwide at the moment in terms of statistics, you know, um, trouble at home. If, if there is trouble at home, let's just say it's more in likely time for it to happen. Tell me the story about your drama teacher. Uh, Candy Garbett was my drama teacher. She was Miss Garbett, of course, to me at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. When, when I was at school, um, there was a there was a girl who was a couple of years older than me whose name was Karen and she um, she was in a big family and I knew her from my father's uh, and mother's youth work so she was somebody that attended youth club and um, I remember how terribly distraught my parents were because um, my father had been contacted by the police because Karen had killed her father really and, yeah. And um, what what came out over the next few uh, weeks and months was um, what had actually been happening in the family home that, that led to her assaulting her father and, and him dying. Um, and the, the level of, of um, abuse and so on, you know, and how difficult that had all been. And although I'd known this family for a long time, and as had my parents, um, you never kind of really know did you did were you shocked did you did you have any sense that that there was something going on or was it a complete shock well i i knew that they were a family um, they were a big family they i knew they were on the council estate i knew that they um they were in quite a small house for so many people so i knew that they were a family with challenges but of course i, I didn't know what the you know that the father was behaving in a way that made his children so frightened and made Karen in the end, you know, pick up a knife to him. So that was, mm. see how I don't, in a way, obviously what she did was awful. awful. But it's understandable as well. It's, it is awful. Because she was a youngster. I think she's probably 17 or something. The connection to Candy Garbett is because I knew that she'd done a lot of work in drama and Bizarrely, later on, I was um, at a conference in the West Midlands and there was this woman and I thought, I know this woman from somewhere. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. She's a neighbouring neighboring head teacher. And it yeah. was Candy Garbett, my drama teacher from all those, all those years mm. ago. And um, we've had a long conversations about many things, including this particular young lady's life and how, how um, I mean, everybody's lives in from those kinds of backgrounds in that era their lives her life was quite closed you know her life chances leaving school what she was going to be able to do her opportunities were quite limited but obviously after that i don't does know anybody know what happened to her now no. i know she went to prison yeah but I, I don't know about that i remember how grateful i felt about the fact that I, I was at that point, you know, thinking about doing A-levels and wanting to go to university. And I had parents that encouraged me to do yeah. that and had, feeling very fortunate that I'd been born in this household and not this household, but also this sense of um, kind of how important it is that when you, when you see a behavior um, and maybe really outrageous behavior, that, that it, it's quite likely to come from come some context. And as an educator now, it's really important to me to 
to see behaviours before they get really serious and to want to help young young people to to steer them to be successful and to have opportunities rather than for mm. everything to go wrong. And of course we don't always get it right. But we work hard to get it as to be as successful with as many students as we can. Mm. And it's um it's interesting like seeing a behavior as a symptom and that there's a story behind it. It's but as you say, it's incredibly easy to react to what's in front of you, isn't it? And to just kind of um well, it's very so we all do that as well. Yeah, 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 of course. Another um, influence you mentioned was Frida, uh, is it Frida Kahlo or Kahlo? How do you say it? Kahlo, I think. Kahlo, yeah. Yeah, so this, this is the art thing. You know, I liked art for a long time. Um, yeah, I, I really like Frida Kahlo because she, I, I first came across her sort of, I suppose, 20 years ago or something, because she, um, like many artists, women, female artists, she wasn't particularly famous in her, her time, her, her husband was much more famous. Diego Rivera was much more famous than her, although she's become a really quite a cultural icon, hasn't she, more recently? Mm. Yeah, I just like the way that she she decided her own painting style and she decided how how she was going to paint. And she she's quite surreal. So she, uh, although she painted herself very often, it was often um, sort of visual metaphors and deep meanings and... Um, was it also that she, she she was Mexican, right? She was a woman, and and of an era, you know, I suppose where women were not as prominent, or you know, was any of that interesting, or was it just the art that you liked? No, all of that was interesting, and and um, she'd had an accident when she was young, a dreadful accident, and it had mm. um, limited what she wanted to do and what she was able to do. So it's that sense of overcoming adversity. So it's a lovely story behind it and how she she was very much in her husband's shadow and then kind of came came through as the stronger the stronger artist um, mm. in the end. But they're good pictures as well. Real bright colours and you know, I like yeah. that. I loved, I, I, re I read a line about it because she apparently had a famous unibrow. <laughs> her eyebrows went across and it said she was confidently unconventional. She was. So she wore Mexican traditional clothes and plaited her hair in traditional ways. So she, she went back to kind of traditional costume as a way of being radical, which is quite, quite interesting. Is that in a time when everything was going, looking to modernize? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Mexico was looking to America, weren't they? So mm. um, 1930s, so they were, it was Ford cars and mm. yeah. uh, Can I ask you, because in relation to yourself, so I would, I would think in a way, and I don't know if it's true, but would you say that you're kind of um, slightly, um, uh, what would be the right word? Um, I'm fascinated to know how you're going to finish this sentence, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, I guess um, resistant to modernity in a way. Like, you know, when I think of you, yeah. Tina and I were talking, you know, some of the toys that we have that were Jay's toys, your, your son's toys, and we have them, you know, they're really traditional and handmade things, and they're really nice. And like I said about the growing vegetables in the garden, and whenever we've wanted to meet up, you would always say, oh, we'll go for walks in the blue bells with the woods and all. You know, you're very earthy and nature-oriented. Do you think that – tell me a bit about that. Um, you know, why do you why do you lean in that direction? 
Well, when I, I'm, I'm guessing here, because I haven't really thought about it, uh, when I was when I was real young, we didn't, although I came from a middle-class educated family, we didn't have lots of things. So we didn't do big Christmas presents and we didn't have a, we didn't have a television when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. So um, there were four children in our family. So I suppose we we engaged with going outside and climbing trees and all of those kinds of all those kinds of activities. And um, I still think that spending time with with people is more valuable than spending money on people. I still think I still definitely it's a, it's a, a value that goes back a long way. But my my grandfather, who I spent, they were quite local to us. Grandfather and grandmother in Colchester. Um, he was a he was a manager of an apple orchard. So they mm. so not Apple computers, <laughs> Apple orchard. Apple orchards. So there was a there. So they had an allotment, and they would so growing vegetables was. But I think that's everybody. I think to some extent, as everybody's grandma and grandpa have that. To a degree, yeah, but I don't necessarily think it it um, um, continues with everybody. Like the the society in general is certainly pushing us, isn't it, to to be more consumer oriented and money oriented, uh, etc. And I just I'm curious because you've obviously held on to it, and I see that as a really good thing. I, I just wondered, is it a conscious thing that you work at? Or is it just something that's just in you? I mean, with your parents, did they not have a TV because they didn't want to spend the money? Or was it more of a values thing that we don't want to let all this stuff into our house? I think it was a values thing. Mm. It was a values thing. So in some ways, they were very protective. Um, and yet, they, you know, they couldn't really protect us from what was happening in, in our community and, and so on at that time. So, yeah, I think it was that. Um, and then my husband, of course, he's a... Uh, great uh, he loves to uh, you know he's got a greenhouse and all of that he loves all that side of things um, and he's very much somebody that's not not a big consumer and, and wants to live in a balanced way he cycles instead of drives a car when he can and that kind of thing yeah it's a sort of a simplicity I suppose isn't it um when I you know that I spend some time as a monk and one of the things that they talk about in the the Vedic uh, culture is simple living and high thinking and I don't know if you absolutely have to have both but I think in a way um, they sound maybe they sound contradictory but I think it's it is actually high thinking to want to live simply if you know what I mean because um, it's easy from a western or from not a western but from a sort of a a society that we live in, it's easy to see simple as um, like a lower down choice or a sort of a less than choice or something like that. Um, you guys, which segues me on to, you guys lived on a canal boat for a bit. <laughs> so tell me a bit about that. First of all, just give me a bit of a, a year or two before. So how did it come about and what was it like? Tune into part two to find out more about what it was that led to Sarah and her family living on a canal boat, what it was like, and so many more interesting topics, as you can guess, still with a real education and arts flavor. I look forward to seeing you there. In the meantime, have a great week.